by what standard are you judging the morality that we have, either good or bad? If there's no God, if there's no standard beyond humanity, how can you even say that murder's wrong? Right. I'm not saying atheists don't know murder's wrong. I'm not mm-hmm. saying atheists are murderers. What I'm saying is there's no way on atheism to justify that murder's wrong and that loving mm-hmm. people is right. Mm-hmm. So you would need a standard outside of humanity, and that standard that we're obligated to is God's nature. If God doesn't exist, everything's reduced to human opinion. Welcome to the All Things All People podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jenkins, and I am so glad that you've chose to listen to the show today, to this particular episode with apologist Frank Turek. You are in for a good one. And before we get to it, I want to remind you that if you haven't liked, subscribed, to the All Things All People podcast, make sure you do that. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, review the show. It's a great way for people to find out about the show and become part of the vision for All Things All People, which is to see generations of Christian thinkers raised up to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. If you want to be a a bigger part of the show, join the All Things All People Behind the Scenes Facebook group. The link for that is in the show notes. And follow me on Instagram at allthings.allpeople and on Twitter at ATAP Podcast. Make sure to do all that. But number one thing is I want you to sit back, whether you're driving, uh, sitting around in your living room, you're supposed to be doing something else, but you're listening to this show. I don't know what it is, okay? Uh, But no matter what, You're in store for a really, really, really packed episode of the podcast today with our Christian thinker, apologist, Frank Turek. Let's do it. My next guest is a dynamic speaker and award-winning author or co-author of four books, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Correct, Not Politically Correct, and Legislating Morality. As the president of crossexamine.org, he presents powerful and entertaining evidence for Christianity at churches, high schools, and at secular college campuses that often begin hostile to his message. Uh, and I can speak personally, they often end uh, in, a, in a much different place. Uh, he has debated several prominent atheists, non-believers, including Christopher Hitchens, David Silverman, and the growing popular YouTuber Alex O'Connor, or Cosmic Skeptic. His many media projects can be found on the fantastic Cross-Examine app, which also provides access to a wealth of apologetics resources. He is a former aviator in the U.S. Navy, has a master's degree from George Washington University, and a doctorate from Southern Evangelical Seminary. It is truly my honor to have on the show today, Dr. Frank Turek. Frank, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Hope you're well. Abs- yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I mentioned in the, the pre-show that uh, the, the commonality that you and I have is that way back when, when I started this show, um, Jorge Hill was on. And uh, he, at the time, I believe, I'm, uh, was serving as your executive director for Cross Examine. He still is. Yeah, we yeah. kept him. Yeah, <laughs> despite. <laughs> yeah, well, good. We because, haven't gotten rid of him yet. Yeah, well, good because uh, he he's a uniquely uniquely gifted guy. Um, yeah, he is. Uh-huh. I, I can't even. I can't imagine working with him. I know it seems like the Cross Examine teams, uh, you know, a little bit of a diaspora. Everybody's in different spots, but he he's mm-hmm. he is a. a a, a, a lot of fun to talk to and, and work with. And, mm-hmm. and just, uh, I, I know it's been a passion project of his to get all the cross-examine resources in Espanol and the social media stuff in Spanish. Right. Um, I'd imagine y'all's reach has grown exponentially through that type of work. Yeah. Cause I can't do that. I, I don't know yeah. much Espanol. <laughs> right. Well, and neither do I. So thank goodness we have guys like Jorge traveling down to, to uh, mm-hmm. Central America. But um you know, one thing though, when I was thinking about my conversation with him and we, we just mentioned you, of course, you can't mention Jorge without mentioning cross-examine. You can't mention cross-examine without mentioning you, uh, is, is Jorge in describing you mentioned your military experience, which I, I hate to say at that time, I didn't realize that you had served in the military and, um, I, I, I'm sure my listeners joined in thanking you for, for your service, but, um, he mentioned that your military background, in his opinion, prepared you 
for a life of standing in front of people who disagree with you and answering their most difficult questions. So let's just start off with this. Was there anything about those experiences uh, flying, navigating especially, that, that makes it easier for you to sometimes be the only Christian in a room of hundreds of people who might sometimes vehemently disagree with you? Well, the only difference is you can't shoot them. You know, you yeah. could in the military, sure, right? right? That's what you're there to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't shoot people that disagree with you now. Yeah. No, not that I'd want to. I'm just saying, uh, yeah. yeah, I guess, you know, going through training and uh, being in the military for eight years certainly, I think, gives you a, a different perspective on life and certainly mm-hmm. gets you some discipline and some, some, I guess, uh, hardship that causes you to be able to go through difficulty in future times. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's true of anybody, not just me. Anybody goes in the military, I think, gets some discipline and also gets, I guess, to a certain extent, some courage to deal with things that Mm -hmm. maybe folks on the outside or haven't been through that might not have had the opportunity to develop. You know, you got to, you got to, the only way to develop any kind of courage is to actually go through a dangerous situation. And so the military does that even in peacetime, it does that, you know? Yeah. So, cause you're, you're, yeah. you're doing stuff that could get you killed pretty Absolutely. easily. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a friend yeah. who's preparing to go uh, back into the army to be a chaplain. And he, he mm-hmm. and I were having coffee this morning and, and actually completely separate to this conversation I'm having with you. He was talking about how he had served, um, as an E4 for quite a long time and in intelligence. And he said that learning how to coexist with people from such different backgrounds as the military provides, mm-hmm. you know, you're with people from different backgrounds, socio-demographically, uh, socioeconomically, um, ethnically, of course. And, and he said that that was one of the things that prepared him for ministry more than anything. And now you're standing on college campuses and by no means are in the midst of a homogenous group uh, that, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, our evangelical churches can look very much monolithic. Right. Um, and so I'd imagine even your experiences in the military and out uh, of of being around people with different backgrounds, different religious beliefs has has made it a lot easier for you to do what you do now. Yeah, and going to different countries makes you realize that America is not the center of the universe, as many Americans mm-hmm. think, you know, there's... Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on outside of America and 95% of the people in the world live outside of America. So right. there's yeah. a lot more to life than just what goes on in America. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's an interesting time uh, to be anybody, to specifically be a Christian, and maybe even on top of that, to be a Christian apologist, somebody who puts themselves out as someone who will at least attempt to provide an answer for, for our faith. And, and there are so many new cultural movements right now, or seemingly new, some of them, uh, for the apologist and the Christian to engage with. And uh, some, somewhat recently, I had Andy Bannister on the show, who's a, an apologist out of the UK. And, and Andy said that he, he was somewhat glad to see some of these cultural movements, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, etc., to see them come to the surface because he sees these as culture, specifically those who feel disenfranchised as asking questions that really only the gospel has the answer to. And -hmm. sometimes, and sometimes American Christians, we can be too quick to be flippant and just dismissive with people who have these issues. Do you, do you resonate with that sentiment? Um, And, and how has the cultural movements of the last year impacted how you see the, the future even of apologetics ministry? Well, Certainly, organizations like Black Lives Matter have a great slogan that we all agree with. The problem is, is that below the surface, what's holding that up is actually a Marxist worldview that believes in virtually everything unbiblical. Mm -hmm. And if you just looked at their website, they've scrubbed it since then, but they wanted to break up the nuclear family. They wanted to support everything LGBTQ to the expense or at the expense of heterosexual activity they uh, were for basically a Marxist overthrow Mm -hmm. (laughs) of, of any government. And that of course is against the Bible. The Bible presupposes private property, by the way. I mean, thou shall not steal presupposes private property. Mm -hmm. Thou shall not covet presupposes you have the right to have things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus presupposes inequity, by the way, 
Uh, he says in the parable of the talents, you know, he's going to give 10 and five and two. And he says each according to his ability. And he then judges people based on their stewardship of what they've been given. He realizes not everybody's going to be given the same. And what is often forgotten by Christians as well is there's not even going to be equality in heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul's going to have, the apostle Paul will have way more rewards than I will in heaven. Mm-hmm. Sure. Why? Because he deserves them. It's Mm -hmm. just that he's going to have more rewards. And so the idea that we're going to have equity everywhere isn't true in this life, and it isn't true in the next life. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean where there's unjust inequity, we shouldn't fight against it. We should. But the goal that to make everyone equal in terms of outcome is not biblical. It's not reasonable for this world, and it's not even going to take place in the next world. Sure. And so it's interesting because you see like you, you you know we use the example of black lives matter but even outside of that organization there are there is just a growing call i mean i can go on my twitter feed as i'm sure you can and and find that within the church uh the i'm not going to pretend to be an expert on crt but right now critical mm-hmm. race theory is mm-hmm. um a, at the forefront of, of, mm-hmm. of evangelical scholars uh arguments right now um but you know, even more than that, like you, 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 you pointed out that the Bible presupposes Jesus presupposes some of these things. So, if a college student, let's say, at one of these presentations uh, that you're so well known to, for doing, and and it, honestly, your witness has has grown exponentially since YouTube, um, because uh, right before I came in here, somebody said Frank Turek's the the most well-known apologist in the United States of America. And I thought, I think that has to be true. And, and a lot of it has to do with these Q and A's you do on YouTube. And uh, um, let's, let's say that, and I'm sure you've gotten this question, a college student hears you say what you just said and then says, so does the Bible presuppose capitalism and should Christians inherently uh, defend capitalism? And maybe even they make an argument from Acts 2 where it says, that they all had everything in common. Nobody had anything in need. What would your uh, answer to that be? My first question would be, what do you mean by capitalism? Sure. So I understand what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because you might have a different idea of what I believe. I mean, I believe right. you have the right to private property, but I do believe that the government needs to be involved in regulating uh, capitalism because without certain constraints, you're going to have people taking advantage of one another. You need mm-hmm. a rule of law, obviously, uh, you need people protecting others from what we call externalities. You know, I don't want a, a, a paper plant opening next to me, putting a whole bunch of, of uh, pollution into the river that I'm drinking out of, obviously. You need, right. you need regulations on this kind of stuff. But what is the least worst system mm. to bring people out of poverty? The least worst system is capitalism. There's no perfect system. In fact, Jay Richards' book, which I always recommend, Money, Greed, and God, is the best book you'll ever read on economics And he points that out. He says, we have this sort of nirvana myth that we think we can compare uh, capitalism to some sort of nirvanic system where everybody prospers and nobody has any trouble. And that's just not the way the world works. That's not reality. Human nature is such that we have to have incentive for people to work. If they don't have incentive for people to work, you have a free rider problem. We we knew that in the, with the, the pilgrims when they first came over, John Bradford or William Bradford, I mean, wanted to uh, have communal farms. Well, it didn't work out. They practically starved to death the first year. The second year, he said, we're not doing communal farms anymore. We're just going to give each family a plot of land and what you ever grow, you keep. Whatever you grow, Mm -hmm. you keep. So no longer could Frank be a free rider while Jeremy did all the work in the the field. Mm -hmm. Frank had to farm his own field in order to eat, and he did, Mm -hmm. and therefore everybody had enough food. So the problem with socialism is, is that it, it has a misunderstanding of human nature. It presupposes that human beings are going to work as much as they can and take as little as they need. In reality, human beings are going to work as little as they can and take as much as they want mm-hmm. because yeah. we're fallen. Mm-hmm. So I would try and uncover what the person thinks about capitalism. And I would generally say that, yes, The Bible presupposes private property, so it would presuppose some sort of capitalistic system, but we can argue over the details of that. Now, with regard to the book of Acts, if you look at the book of Acts, uh, they put all their property together at Pentecost, and Pentecost was was a description of an event, not a prescription of an event. The government was not involved at all, 
Ananias and Sapphira were, were basically killed for lying to the Holy Spirit, not for keeping private property. Mm-hmm. And nowhere yeah. is that said to be the norm for other Christians. It's not an economic system that is commanded. Again, it's a description, not a prescription. If you want to live in a commune, that's fine. You can do that. But it's not prescribed by the Bible. It's simply a description of what happened for a short period of time in a unique situation when Pentecost hit. Right. And do you think sometimes, because I know I've, I've had, you know, high schoolers, I was in student ministry a long time, and it seems as if sometimes um, it doesn't, it's not always young people. It's certain, certainly incorrect to say it's always young people, but you and I deal with young people mostly, uh, that they might sometimes look at the way Christians live their lives and see what the Holy Spirit brings about and say that that benevolence uh, sure seems a lot like socialism or communism. So they say, therefore, Christianity preaches one of these alternative systems when really it's just uh, a supernatural benevolence or concern for our neighbor and even our enemy at times uh, that brings about this, this false analogy that, that Christianity preaches one of these, these ideological systems when really it's, 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 I mean, to say it's alternative is, is maybe even falling short. It's, it's uh, antithetical. Well, the Bible does not command the government to right. take care of the poor. Mm-hmm. It commands Christians to do so. Now, of course, a Christian can be for the government sure. taking care of the poor. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I'm simply saying that if you're going to take every biblical command as a command to government, then you'd also have to say the government ought to, ought to be preaching the gospel. Sure. Because right. that's, the, that's the, one of the number one things we're supposed to do. Now, I personally think the government ought to be preaching the gospel. Right. <laughs> the truth. <laughs> in an ideal, I in an ideal world. Yeah. Now, and I don't think that's a violation of the separation of church and state either, according to our Constitution. Mm. Separation of church and state was basically, it's not in the Constitution, it's a Danbury Baptist letter from 1803 from Thomas Jefferson, who had nothing to do with writing the Constitution, by the way. He was in mm. France as the ambassador for France when the Constitution was being written. James Madison wrote the First Amendment. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the point here is, is that the government can support religion and can um, encourage religion. In fact, there are quotes from, of course, all the early church fathers, church fathers, founding fathers, uh, including George Washington and James Madison and others saying how important religion is to to government. They even gave money to build churches. Thomas Jefferson did. He gave money Mm -hmm. to the Kaskaskia Indians to build a church there in uh, in, um, Michigan. So there's nothing unconstitutional about supporting religious causes. Mm-hmm. What is unconstitutional is trying to say that every citizen has to be a member of a church. Right. And, and, and that's what the government uh, or the constitution did not, and the founding fathers did not want to put forth. They came from that in England. They didn't mm-hmm. want the intolerance of saying we had a national denomination, a national yeah. religion, mm-hmm. but they were perfectly fine to support religious causes for the good of society. Yeah. Well, and even, by the way, you talking about uh, a paper treatment plant makes me think you've, because you and I are both from Western North Carolina, you've probably driven on I-40 West and driven through Canton, I would imagine. Probably, yeah. It's, it, yeah. it's it, The smell in the air there is enough to make us not want paper oh, plants. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, one of the reasons why I think you're so effective and, and you see it even in how you, you present your ideas in regards to government and, and, and faith Um is also the reason why I think you've been so effective seeing hearts and minds actually changed through apologetics ministry, not just winning debates or winning arguments with students, um, but, but actually seeing people change their mind and, and, and be led to, to Christ. So, uh, but I think one of the reasons is how concise and deliberate you are and how you deliver your message and answer questions. Um, in fact, I think you're pretty well known for uh, how quickly you respond to questions. In fact, I know you, you travel with, uh, you know, slides prepared for the most common questions you get. And often you bring your arguments down to four core, core points that I kind of want to just explore with you. Um, and it's, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament reliable? Um, and I know that oftentimes that's sort of how you, you uh, summarize a lot of what you do. So what is it about these four questions that are so effective in addressing questions regarding Christianity? Because those four questions, if the answer is yes to all of them, then Christianity is true. 
And secondly, those are the four questions that people tend to deny or mm -hmm. the four points people tend to deny. They tend to deny truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Right. So those are the ones we, we try and go through with a audience when we just have uh, you know, an hour or two to cover. The book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, goes into a lot more detail, has more mm -hmm. points, but those are the four main points. Why, why yeah. is important does truth exist? Because people are denying there's truth. And as soon as they say there's no truth, I ask them, is that true? Yeah. Of course, yeah, there's right, truth. To right. say there's no truth is a truth claim. Yeah, you wouldn't exactly. go to college if there was no truth. Why even go in there? What's the point, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The second question, does God exist? You can't have a word from God if there's no God. You can't have Jesus rise from the dead if there is no God. So we give usually three arguments for the existence mm -hmm. of God to show that he exists even without the Bible. Then, yeah. of course, we get to our miracles possible because the greatest miracle in the New Testament is the resurrection. And if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, Christianity can't be true. Mm -hmm. So we have to point out the fact that miracles are possible before you look at the evidence for the resurrection, because if there is no God and miracles are not possible, it doesn't appear how good the evidence looks for the resurrection. It didn't happen, right? right? And so if God exists, the, the miracles are possible. And we also point out that the greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we even point out that even atheists admit the universe had a beginning. Now, they don't right. think it's God, but if space, matter, and time had a beginning, <laughs> the cause can't be made of space, matter, and time, right? Mm -hmm. The cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent in order to create the universe out of nothing. So we establish that the greatest miracle, Genesis 1-1, has already occurred. So when we look at our miracles possible, the answer is, of course, yes, the greatest miracle has already occurred, the creation of the universe. Now, the next question, when we get to the New Testament, is do we have enough evidence to say that Jesus rose from the dead? And we look at the evidence, I think we do. And therefore, if Jesus has risen from the dead, he's God. Whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. Because, look, I just have a personal policy, Jeremy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just yeah. trust whatever the guy says. Yeah, right, exactly. So Jesus rose from the dead, so therefore Christianity is true. Now, that's, that's the whole book in, what, yeah, two minutes? Right. Yeah. But if you really want the details, you've got to read gotta it. You've got to buy it. You've got to buy it. Well, yeah. and, you know, you wrote, you wrote, co-wrote that book with uh, your mentor, Norm Geisler, yep. the late Norm mm -hmm. Geisler. Um, who I know meant a lot to you. I actually had the opportunity to meet him one time at Southern Evangelical in, in Charlotte. And he was such a sweet man. Um, mm -hmm. it, was, it was monumental for me to, to meet somebody whose textbooks I had been forced to buy ultimately in college, but ended up loving. Um, right. So, so you know, what did he mean to you and to the apologetics community as a whole in his lifetime and in his ministry? Well, when I met him, he was the Michael Jordan of apologetics. Mm. And... Uh, you know, he had written more and debated more and had brought up more apologists than anybody else. In fact, many people don't know this, but William Lane Craig was a student of his. Robbie yeah. Zacharias was a student mm -hmm. of his. Uh, just about anybody in apologetics at one point had some sort of course or mentorship yeah. from Norm Geisler, including myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, many of Josh McDowell's books yeah. were used research that uh, Norm Geisler had done, even evidence demands a verdict. Some of that came from Norm's uh, general introduction to the Bible written back way back in 1968. So yeah, he, yeah. and I, I learned so much from him, not only from his books, but just from traveling with him and, and going and doing seminars with him and seeing him answer questions. Cause he was very good at, at being concise and trying to get answers, short answers. He would call them credit card answers. You know, mm -hmm. he'd just give them a point or two, and you leave the rest to read in a book. You can't cover everything verbally, quite honestly, especially when you right. have a line of people behind you yeah. uh, ready to ask a question. So you've got to be short. People always ask, you know, what's the hardest question to answer? And the real answer is questions aren't hard to answer. They're just hard to answer in two minutes. Right. Right. You don't have time to cover all the bases. You can kind of just give somebody a, a nugget or two, and then you got to move on to the next person. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's I think, people, the I think people are people are sometimes harder to answer than their questions because of course right. you're trying to get like you said in, in the cross examine app for anybody who's listening has this tremendous really almost the first three or four lessons of the cross examine app every Christian should read because it basically outlines what questions to ask before you ever try and answer a question mm -hmm. and and you and and all the people at cross examined are tremendous examples of, of how fruitful these questions are but oftentimes it's it's the person that you're really trying to answer not so much That's even right. the question and you know somebody only has to watch some of your more popular videos to find that oftentimes 
the people are very angry when they get to the microphone with you. And I believe personally, the respect that you try and show them often softens them to where they might actually hear what you have to say. And I'd imagine, I mean, from the little bit of interaction that, that I've even seen Norm Geisler have, he, he certainly modeled that for a generation of apologists, that gentleness that brought about a willingness to listen. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, people ask me, why are you patient with people who are angry with you? And I go, well, why should I expect this 20-year-old college kid to agree <laughs> yeah. with me? Right. Right. I, when I was 20, I didn't even agree with, with me now. So, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, why should you expect people to agree yeah. with you? You shouldn't. Right. So just don't, don't take it personally. Just say, okay, guy doesn't agree yeah. with me. That's fine. Well, why, why are you saying what you're saying? What, right. You know, yeah. you're, you're saying God's evil. What do you mean by evil? Where, where'd you get mm-hmm. your moral standard from? You yeah. know, you're, right. you're assuming some things in order to even ask the question. And if, if atheism is true, those things don't exist. That's what the book Stealing from God is about. They're stealing mm-hmm. aspects of reality from God that wouldn't exist unless God existed, but yet atheists are saying God doesn't exist. So they're yeah. stealing from God to argue against him. So a lot of times it's just, you just got to remember that people shouldn't agree with you on everything. Right. And we're making some pretty big claims. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Claims. If I was getting up and talking about, you know, black holes or something mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, the, uh, the orbit of, of Jupiter. Yeah. First of all, you wouldn't get as big an audience. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But secondly, well, maybe it would for black holes. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. um, secondly, it doesn't really affect their life all that much. So they're mm-hmm. going to go, okay, I don't care if you're right or wrong. I'm just going to yeah. listen. You yeah. know, the, the implication of Christianity is what really gets people riled up. That's why I always ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And of mm-hmm. course, many times if they're honest, they say no, because right. we're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest. They're just going to believe yeah. whatever they think is going to make them happy. And they think God is going to get in the way of their happiness. So they don't even want Christianity to be true. So it doesn't matter how much evidence you show them, they're going to go the other way. They're looking for God as much as a criminal is looking for a cop, right? They're, mm-hmm. not, they're not interested. Yeah. It, and it brings us back to those four, those four questions. And because and, and, I do think it is a very concise and effective way to begin a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you on your belief. But the interesting thing in my experience, and I'm sure yours as well, that first question actually is one of the most difficult to, to overcome with someone who intrinsically disagrees with you. Does truth exist? Because we see that many non-believers will stumble on this right away. Uh, like I said, like I mentioned to you, I was at the debate in 2018 between Dr. Michael Roos and Dr. Richard Howe. Mm-hmm. at SES. And uh, you and I pre-show had talked about how much we both enjoyed Dr. Michael Roos. He was such a, a nice guy. And uh, at the end of it, I think you said, you're my new favorite atheist. And he, he was just this sweet man. Um, he was. Yeah. That's, uh, that's Michael Roos from what, Florida State? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and very intelligent guy, but you know, I felt like his arguments were lacking a little bit as I'm sure you did, yeah. of course. Um, and cause he made an argument that's common among many non-believers, at least right now. Um, and has been historically that morality is of course relative and it's something to be discovered over time and might deviate from possible world to possible world. Now, simply for listeners who are not familiar with philosophy, like the idea of all possible worlds being that this is just one of many possible worlds that could have been, actualized. And, and Dr. Roos, like many non-believers right now, are saying that um, the morality that we find to be true in this world is relative insofar as it might actually be different than the morality in another possible world, which is a reductionist argument because neither one of us has time to explain the full uh, depth of that. But what do, you, what do you make of arguments like this, um, as I'm sure you're encountering more uh, and more of them in your work on college campuses and in debates? Well, one of the problems is, is that it's an assertion without any evidence. And then secondly, by what standard are you judging the morality that we have either good or bad? If there's no God, if there's no standard beyond humanity, how can you even say that murder's wrong? Right. I'm not saying atheists don't know murder's wrong. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying atheists are murderers. What I'm saying is there's no way on atheism to justify that murder's wrong and that loving Mm -hmm. people is right. Mm -hmm. So you would need a standard outside of humanity and that standard that we're obligated to is God's nature. If God doesn't exist, everything's reduced to human opinion. And this is why uh, 
I find it hard to believe, as even some atheists will admit, Louise Anthony, who uh, debated William Lane Craig, uh, she was an atheist, she admitted something toward the end of her debate with Craig that actually hurt her position. She said, any argument for moral skepticism, <coughs> excuse me, will be based upon weaker arguments than the intuition that we have that there are certain moral rights and wrongs. Now, I'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. what she said, of but basically right. she's saying that you know murder is wrong more than you know atheism's right. Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> or correct mm -hmm. right you're more sure that torturing babies for fun is wrong than you are that there's no god mm -hmm. well if that's the case why would you ever say there's no god you have much stronger evidence that torturing babies for fun is wrong mm -hmm. it's just it's it's part of your intuition you 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 just know this then you have that there's no god right yeah and and in that same that same night uh, and we're just using, like we both said, it, Dr. Michael Roos is, is uh, just one example of, of atheists and non-believers in general professing this type of philosophy in regards to moral relativism. But I remember, mm -hmm. like you just mentioned, by the way, I think everybody is weakened in their arguments when they're debating William Lane Craig at some point. Uh, mm -hmm. it, seem, it seems as if arguments just fall apart in front of William Lane Craig. But right. uh, somebody got up and, and, and the topic of abortion had come up and Roos had come out and said, of course, abortion is 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 okay within this relative system of morality and then someone got up later and asked about people eating dogs in southeast asia and and he hedged on that because to him he wasn't sure if uh if eating dogs was moral or not and i and i don't want to be mischaracterizing him if somebody from florida state's listening and i'm incorrect reach out to me and let me know but i'm pretty sure i'm right and and so it seems whether that has to seem whether to a believer or a non-believer as horribly inconsistent and like you said we know that murder is wrong you and i have an answer as to why an atheist doesn't really have an answer but do you continue to see more and more just of these egregious inconsistencies in these moral systems if that murder is wrong abortion is right in in tr more trivial things like eating dogs is is somehow morally prohibited well actually if that's the way ruse reacted he's betraying his own worldview right because according to his own worldview nothing's right or wrong so why would he even hesitate on dogs right because i don't why think would he even he, hesitate he, why would he I even say he's a dog he, i don't know lover. about that one he, <laughs> yeah he would that would be giving away the, the 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 truth that he knows in his heart that there is a real right and wrong yeah i mean right. is it okay to abort puppies Right. You know, he might, he might object to that, but he's, he's fine. Okay. Aborting human beings. Mm -hmm. Well, what if both are wrong? Right. And if there's, if there's no God, if, if, if Ruse's mind or I'm sorry, if Ruse's worldview is telling him nothing's right or wrong, then he wouldn't even hesitate. Right. Even if he got the most egregious, egregiously immoral uh, possibility put in front of him, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, is it okay to, you know, to cannibalize your parents, what right. would he say? Would, yeah. would, he would have to say, if atheism is true, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Immediately, it, he would have to say that. It, but he it, knows it, deep in his heart it's exactly. not Exactly. Right. And he wouldn't say that. And there, therein lies the problem. And that's where yeah. we begin to see the question of, of, of possible worlds and the morality in this world being relative yet fixed. It seems as if that's the trend right now is that it's an idea of, well, it's relative, but there is some standards, which of course you and I both would agree is inconsistent at best. Well, um, and many of the people who are arguing this are atheists and they, they, they have very loud claims that say black lives matter. How can black lives matter or white lives matter or any lives matter if there's no God, everything's right. just a matter of sure. human opinion. Right. So on one hand, they're, they're denuding the world of objective morality. On the other hand, they're trying to say, here are my objective moral principles that you must live by. Wait a minute, time out. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, right. You exactly. can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. right. Either there, there are rights and wrongs, which means God exists, or there aren't, which means all your pet political projects are suddenly just your own subjective preferences. They have no grounding in objective reality. Yeah. And this leads us to then the second part of oftentimes, what is your presentation? And, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And then often your cross-examined speakers will present things um, in line with the four questions, but then the four E's, which are often the most common objectives, which is mm -hmm. evil and the problem of evil therein, 
ethics, which you and I've, you know, just explored, um, evolution and eternity. And, and a question that I've always wanted to ask you, and since, you know, I have you in front of me, uh, at least technologically speaking now, mm-hmm. when it comes to the moral argument, I just got to be honest, I, I've always worried that when presenting things like the moral argument, where you propose the idea that there is no morality apart from the existence of God, that we might even be pushing non-believers to nihilism. Because what we're really saying is that, that if you don't believe in God, there is no fixed morality, and therefore, there are no standards for morality. Does that thought ever cross your mind that, that in making these arguments, we might actually be convincing atheists and non-believers in general to abandon any sense of a Christianized morality? Or do you think deep down they would never rebel against their morality, even though they don't have a referent for it? Well, the consequences of an argument aren't my concern. My mm. concern is try and present the truth. Right. The truth of the matter is that if there is no God, then anything is permitted, as Dostoevsky said. As yeah. Nietzsche, the only true honest atheist, I think, to try and live out the implications right. of atheism, mm-hmm. uh, said, you know, there is, there is no, if there is no God, then forget it. Yeah. it. If we kill God, if we kill belief in God, we kill belief in man. Mm-hmm. If God dies, man dies. He said that prior to 1900, right. and yet the ni- 1900s were the bloodiest century in the history of the universe because we gave up belief in God. In fact, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, asked all of the dissidents prior to him what really went wrong with the Russian Revolution and why did they have to live through 70 years of atheism Mm -hmm. and all the terrors that came with it, 20 million of their own citizens killed. And the dissidents together, if you had to sum up why that happened is because, quote, men have forgotten about God. Right. So our job is to just teach people the truth. If people are going to reject the truth and go their own way, there's nothing we can do about Mm -hmm. that other than to present them the truth and try and love them. That's what we do. Do you feel um, as if utilitarianism, we're only going to continue to see more and more of, of maybe like a Peter Singer, um, who is very well known for some of his controversial views within utilitarianism, which is whatever, um, whatever brings to the forefront human happiness and human well-being, even at the cost of uh, disabled people or people who we don't, who might not be considered um, to have a personage yet. So infants, disabled people, whatnot. Um, do you think we're going to continue to see more and more of a rise of that type of philosophy in mainstream uh, Western society? I don't know if we'll see more of it, but notice that Singer is smuggling a moral law into his system to make it work. Sure. Why, why is he saying that certain people are worth more than others? By what standard is he saying right. that? Yeah. Right? He's smuggling in a system. Even happiness or human flourishing yeah. is a, and Sam Harris does this, he smuggles in human flourishing as the goal. Mm-hmm. Well, why human flourishing? Why not roach flourishing? Right. Why not dolphin flourishing? Mm-hmm. Why not nobody flourishing? And which yeah. humans? The Nazis? Yeah. Well, and or, he's a uh, singer you know, well known for his animal rights um, activism as, as I think many people in that community are, but it really is a, it, it, it is a devaluing of human life in the form of placing a new value on it within the idea of sentient beings. And so he would say a sentient, uh, and like I always say, I don't want to mischaracterize his argument, but uh, you know, uh, a fully developed animal is worth rescuing over an undeveloped human, i.e. an infant. But why? By what standard? You have to ask, ask him what standard right. is he saying that? And how do animals have rights if there's sure. no God? Who right. said? He did? Right. And I, I mean, I think, I think he, I think he would respond with, with sort of that sentiment is that it is not just him, of course, but he would, he would argue that just as if we argue that the atheist has this internal ghost morality uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, that we would say is implanted there because of the Madre Day um, and the belief or the ultimate existence of God. I, I, I agree with you. I think that they're, they're ghosting in a morale, a morality rule in there but taking a complete left turn. And it seems as if I don't think we're ever going to get to a point. I hope we don't ever get to a point where these types of beliefs are prevalent, but the mere fact that, you know, like I mentioned, Andy Bannister, Andy Bannister debated Peter Singer on unbelievable with Justin Brierley. And 
it's amazing to me that these beliefs can be professed and there isn't a visceral reaction. And so that has to say something about where, where society is heading at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so. well, you're always going to find somebody who agrees with you, no matter how yeah. crazy you say sure. something. Even mm-hmm. George Will years ago said, "There's, uh, there's not a." I'm paraphrasing again. He yeah. said something like, "You can find a professor somewhere to support any crazy belief that right. you come up with, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything to get into a journal." Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's crazy what some people will believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the point here is, is that unless there's a standard beyond humanity, there are no human rights, there are no animal rights, there's no rights to anything. Mm-hmm. We're just molecules bumping into one another. Yeah, and right. There's no way of saying, having any value. It's, yeah. I mean, let me put it this way. Sometimes I use an illustration from football. I ask people, how do you know that your quarterback throwing a touchdown is better than your quarterback throwing an interception? And people go, oh, the rules, uh, you know, I don't know. No, the purpose of the game. Mm-hmm. Right. If there's no purpose to the game, you can't say that your quarterback throwing a touchdown is better than your quarterback throwing an interception mm-hmm. because without a purpose, without a goal, you can't see if you're getting closer to or further away from the goal. All you can say is that the plays are different, right? You need a standard. Well, the same mm-hmm. thing is true in life. If there's no purpose to life, if we're just molecular machines, if we're just moist robots jump, bumping into one another, and there's no ultimate end other than we all just die and it's over. How can you say that one particular behavior is better than another particular behavior? Because neither of those behaviors are taking you closer to or further from a goal because there is no goal. Mm-hmm. There is no purpose. Right. It's nihilism. Yeah. Right. And it, and it leads me to also something that I've, I've always appreciated about how you present these apologetic arguments. Uh, and not that other apologists don't, but you do it in such a way that you don't leave uh, biblical theology, biblical application at the door. And I think that that's found especially in one of those other E's, which is evolution. Um, Some apologists leave room for what might be called theistic evolution in their arguments. Uh, Very popular uh, apologists, in fact. And and some even promote it in the case of maybe like Alvin Plantinga, who's not an apologist, but a very well-known philosopher. Uh, You seem to take a harder stance saying that evolution is diametrically opposed to the message of the Bible. Why do you take that route while many other apologists, like I said, leave more room for it uh, to support their arguments? First of all, it depends on what you mean by evolution. Mm -hmm. Sure, macroevolution is observed. Mm-hmm. But macroevolution, molecules to man without intelligence, first of all, doesn't appear to be true from the evidence. Not only mm-hmm. do I think that the evidence for it is weak, I think there's strong evidence against it. So regardless of what the Bible says, I think we have a problem with macroevolution. I will say this, that even if macroevolution is true, it doesn't mean Christianity's false. I just right. don't think there's good evidence for mm-hmm. macroevolution. I think it would cause us to reinterpret some passages in Genesis, mm-hmm. but... It wouldn't destroy Christianity. It wouldn't say there's no God, right. because even if evolution is true, the natural laws, first of all, you need a universe. Where'd that come from? Mm-hmm. You need a fine-tuned universe. Where'd that come from? The natural laws that drive the universe and supposedly drive evolution need to be created and sustained mm-hmm. by a mind, which is what God is. Yeah. So even if it were true, you wouldn't get rid of the need for God. This is one of the, the biggest misunderstandings I think people have. They think, well, if evolution is true, there's no need for God. Yeah. Evolution, if it explains anything might explain how new life forms came into being. It doesn't explain where the universe came from. Doesn't explain mm-hmm. where the, how it's fine-tuned. Do, doesn't explain where the first life came from or why that's fine-tuned. Doesn't explain objective moral values. Doesn't explain uh, where the laws of logic and mathematics come from. Doesn't explain the laws of nature themselves. Doesn't explain anything about what appears to be good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Doesn't explain any of this stuff. And yet they think, well, if evolution is true, the whole thing, Christianity is false. No, it's not. Right. Right. So, so then, uh, and not that you would need to take issue by any means, because these, these guys are uh, oftentimes coworkers of yours at various conferences mm-hmm. and events, but you know, Craig or a planting, a, you don't take issue with their leaving room for it and not taking a firm stance in their presentations on it. No, I, and I think, I don't think William Lane Craig would disagree with what I just said. No, absolutely. I think he said, I've heard him say that exactly. He just, yeah, yeah, he doesn't, he, it seems like it's more not his prerogative to argue that case, which I think is an important value to have in apologetics. Well, what he says, uh, and he's looking into this right now, as a matter of fact, I think one of his studies, what he says is that the fine tuning of the universe allows one to even sidestep the question of, of biology, Mm. um, 
because the universe appears to be fine-tuned. In other words, you need a designer before you ever get to biology. Whether or not there's a designer in biology is a separate question. You need a designer uh, to even start and fine-tune the laws of nature and the universe that we have now. So you don't get rid of the need for a designer, even if macroevolution is true. Now, he's now looking more into the macroevolutionary theory. And I, I was in a session last year with, uh, with Bill at uh, the uh, Evangelical Theological Society, and he said, I'm not a theistic evolutionist. Okay, right. so I think a lot of people think he is because he doesn't say that he's not. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he's he, he says he's not. So right. I take him at his word at that because he sure. investigates these things doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean he's a theistic evolutionist. Now right. he's much more confirmed in his old Earth perspective than maybe I am. I mean, right. I, I lean that way. I think the evidence is better. The Earth is old, mm-hmm. but I'm you know it's not a hill for me to die on. I don't care right. if it's old or young. You know that right. God created is more certain than when. It just appears to be that the evidence is better that it's old. Okay, fine, it is. Do you think, uh, especially within like a Thomistic school of apologetics or philosophy, that that what you just said, the ability to not die on every hill, is an Mm -hmm. important value to have if you're going to venture into that brand of apologetics? Yeah, one of the things I say to all new apologists is, first of all, get your education before you go do this kind of stuff because you don't know what you don't know, Mm -hmm. and you 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 need to. uh, you probably need to know stuff you don't even know exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like me, I didn't know about philosophy. Like I know now going sure. through the program, I wouldn't have known right. it. And most of what I do is philosophical in the sense of pointing out the errors and other people's uh, assertions. Uh, but secondly, let the main things be the main things and the, and, and the, and the, the secondary things, the secondary things don't die on every hill, deal with the four big questions, truth, God, miracles, new Testament. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the four E's when it comes to questions as you brought up, and you don't even need to die on those hills, but you need to answer questions on evil, on ethics, on evolution and eternity. Mm-hmm. Those are the, the, the four big ones. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Frank, b- before I let you go, um, I, you know, I want my listeners cause ma- many, many of my listeners are somewhat interested in apologetics, I'm sure, but it's not what they think about when they lay down in bed at mm-hmm. night. But, uh, but all of them and, and even maybe some non-believers who are listening w- would want to hear uh, your thoughts on, on, Uh, these two questions. Uh, First, what advice would you give to young Christians who might not necessarily be apologists in the making, but, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to withdraw from secular society Mm -hmm. and they, and they want to maintain a voice for the gospel among us. So what advice would you give? Cause I know that you're not just an apologist. I mean, you're, uh, you're a minister. Uh, You have a shepherding heart, I know. And so what advice would you give to young Christians who, who watch you do these Q and A's and say, "I, I can't get up and do that, but I want to have a witness here. Well, to have a witness, you've got to care about people, obviously, but you also have to prepare yourself intellectually. In addition to the books that, you know, that I've contributed to, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist stealing from God books like that. I always recommend people read Greg Kokel's tactics book to navigate conversations. And we have some of this, some of the simple questions Greg suggests you ask on our app, the cross-examined app you mentioned earlier, two Mm -hmm. words in the app store, Uh, questions like, what do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Questions that you need in order to engage with people and, you know, how do you deal with difficult people, that kind of thing. So I think it's really important that not only do you have to have a a care for people, but you have to ask questions. You have to know how to ask questions Mm. because uh, questions demonstrate an interest in people and they also help you understand where people are coming from. Uh, and not assuming you know the answer automatically. Just mm-hmm. try and figure out where they're coming from and why they think the way they do. It also shows respect for people, so they're more willing yeah. to listen to you. If, you've, if you spend 80% of your time asking them questions, they'll hear you for 20%, right? Absolutely. Abs- yeah, absolutely. And, and then lastly, um, for, for a pastor, maybe it's a youth pastor, a parent even, mm-hmm. who's looking at the next 10 to 20 years, and, and of course, we live in a the world's always been as uncertain as it is right now, but I think for American Christians right now, it seems more uncertain than it ever has, at least not in the last century. But so what can pastors, leaders, parents do to address what might be called the youth exodus? The fact that so many young Christians are leaving the church in droves because obviously something is not resonating with them. Um, And I know that you spend a ton of time with college students and you better than most have a, a large sample size of, of grievances that people might have with the church. And so what advice would you give to a parent, youth pastor, or pastor? Well, there's no substitute for the parents knowing the answers and then modeling them. 
Mm-hmm. And you, you need to protect your kids from too much social media too, because so much of what they're getting is they're getting attracted to the world and the world is completely antithetical to Christianity. Now notice the world is particularly when it comes to sex, completely opposite of what Christianity is. And that's the mm-hmm. one thing that pulls kids away. They don't want to have any sexual restraints on them. They have friends who are LGBTQ or identify that way. And, Oh, if, I, I can't, you know, if I believe in Jesus the way Jesus believes, then I'm going to offend my friends. So, so much for Jesus or so much for Christianity. Uh, yet there's a moral aspect to that too, right? Of course. They're trying to say that love requires approval. Well, no, love doesn't require approval. In fact, mm-hmm. in order to love people, quite frequently you have to disapprove of what they do. Every parent knows this. If you, if you approve of everything your kid wants to do, you're not loving. You're unloving. Right. Yeah. You need to stand in the way of evil. And so you need to prepare your kids for a difficult world that is going to challenge their beliefs. And if they don't have their beliefs firmly grounded, they're going to walk away from Christianity. And that's a lot more important than about anything else you can do. If you're not discipling your kid to come up with the truth and to obey the truth of Christianity and to spread that truth, then what else really matters in the long run? Wow. Well, that is tremendous advice. And I know as a, as a father I, uh, of two small kids, that that's a huge encouragement to me to, to get Keeps home. them and, apologetics young. Yeah. Very young. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, maybe cross-examine will start having uh, kids, kids camps uh, whenever uh, COVID allows, allows us to do something. Well, like you know, there's some resources out there. I think William Lane yeah. Craig's books on the uh, attributes yeah. of God are great for little kids. And then Jim Wallace mm-hmm. has those little books, uh, you know, Cold yeah. Case Christianity for Kids, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. There's stuff out there that, that, yeah. that people can get involved in right now before they get to the junior high level where the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist stuff takes over. Yeah. Well, and, and for a listener who says, man, this, this Frank Turret guy, um, I want to find out more. Make sure to check out Cross-Examine app, which is going to be linked in the show notes along with his website and all of his books. And whenever we get back to doing events, uh, if you want to have a Cross-Examine speaker come speak at your event, and I think even right now, I, I think you guys are getting back to it because I've seen a few mm-hmm. things pop up. Go check out the Cross-Examined uh, website and get some information about the team of speakers that they have. As I mentioned, Jorge Hill, who's a friend of the show, uh, is another one with you that that is tremendous and so many other people. So, so Frank, you are uh, truly uh, one of the biggest encouragements to guys like me who are trying to raise up Christian thinkers. And so thank you so much for being on the show and being so generous with your wisdom and your time today, my friend. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for the work you're doing with your church. It's so important. Uh, being a pastor is the second hardest job in American Christianity. Wow. <laughs> the hardest First, job is being the pastor's wife. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to so, say, I think my wife has it harder than me. So that's right. <laughs> well, well, thank, thank you until, uh, until the next time. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it.